This podcast is made possible by the generosity of listeners like you. Kindly consider a contribution through Patreon or PayPal. Links are in the details box. Patreon is a monthly subscription that you can cancel anytime. And PayPal is a one-time donation. Any amount is appreciated. And follow us on social media. We're on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. The handle, The Beirut Banyan. And you can find us on our YouTube channel with the same name. And you can start watching the episodes as they're released. Thank you for listening. And thank you for watching. I'm Rani Shatah, and this is the Beirut Banyan. Joe, I appreciate you staying up a bit late to speak with me uh, about a delicate subject. Um, it's a sensitive issue, but I think it's increasingly mainstream. And this sort of the issue of partition, the, the wider story of partition. I mean, it's always been there. It's always been in the background. Uh, but I think in recent months, it's sort of, it's gaining some traction. Even among skeptics, I think the discussion is sort of, it's more visible. And uh, I reached out to you after reading your piece in Foreign Policy, largely dissecting the issue. It's partition is the only solution to Lebanon's woes. Hezbollah's dominance has deprived non-Shia Lebanese of a voice in their own country. It is time to reconsider a century of consociational democracy and return to a form of federalism. And now we're sort of going back in time, a century ago, um, Ottoman, modern Lebanese history. And I want to pick your brain because I'm a skeptic. The word partition has a negative connotation to me, and I think that's more emotional and maybe instinctual rather than actually understanding the issue. But before we jump into that story, um, let's talk about the last two days, <laughs> the last I mean, recent hours. I mean, it's just yesterday. Macron is admitting at least partial failure that his initiative did not sort of take off the way he wanted. Um, he was also putting immense blame on local actors, and he did mention Hezbollah by name. Um, in, in your opinion, sort of your own analysis, do you think the French initiative is sort of dead? Was it dead on arrival? Or is it still largely the only way out? And it is, it's a fait accompli that Lebanese actors will have to adhere to the French initiative. Just your own your own reaction, really, to Macron yesterday, Macron back in September, and, and where we are. Well, it is the only initiative on the table. Mm. If the Macron initiative fails, unfortunately, there is no alternative because the Lebanese establishment has now determined and shown to the entire world that they are unwilling not incapable, but unwilling to come to some kind of a solution to resolve the problems of this country that are growing day in and day out. Now, uh, President Macron is the only international leader. Let's not forget, France is a permanent member of the Security Council, which means it's a country that carries a certain amount of weight in the international community. Mm -hmm. 
President Macron is willing to invest some of his time and some of his capital, political capital, for Lebanon and for the Lebanese to actually overlook or ignore or dismiss such an initiative, not only is collective treason, as he labeled it, but as far as I'm concerned, it is unforgivable, unforgivable, because Lebanon is on the verge of collapse, literal collapse at all levels, political, economic, social, military, whatever you want to call it, this country can no longer endure. So therefore, I think those who are dismissing Macron are really either committing suicide, and they don't know that they are committing suicide, or they are uh, totally unaware of the consequences of their inactions. And worse, they still think the establishment is still embedded with people who still think that they can actually continue the way things were before or August 2020. And I think that just speaks for itself. You know, I know it's a hot button issue, but we can we can jump right into it. Uh, is there, in your opinion, is Hezbollah right now the determining factor, whether or not this French initiative takes hold? Or is it really across the board that all Lebanese actors, all Lebanese politicians with influence today are to blame? And I, and I mean it really in terms of it's almost like the bare minimum, getting a government together. Not not necessarily the existential issues, but more in just the first step. Would you put the onus on Hezbollah, or, or is it a collective blame? You cannot blame simply Hezbollah. Mm -hmm. All of them bear responsibility. Mm -hmm. The president of the republic and his uh, free uh, uh, FPM party, uh, uh, and uh, Nabih Berri and his group, Samir Jaja and his group, uh, Saad Hariri and his group, and we don't talk about this very often, but I want to mention something which I was reading the other day uh, with uh, Charles de Gaulle, the president of France, mm. who pretty much faced the same type of crises back in 1958 when he came to power after being away for several years, mm -hmm. and he put a new constitution in the country, and what did the constitution of 1958 do? It banned the political parties of actually having a voice in how the government is run. Right. The goal wanted the president and the administration and the experts to essentially run the country. He mm. wanted to deny the parties this role. Now, Lebanon is part of the French cultural framework. Therefore, we should learn something from the experience of someone like de Gaulle. But we still are allowing the political parties to determine the fate of this country. Hezbollah, Mustaqbal, uh, Future Party, the Ishtirakis, the Progressive Socialist Party, the Aouni groups, uh, the Lebanese forces, all of them are involved. Now, by saying this, of course, I don't mean to say that there are not good people among all of these individuals. Mm -hmm. They certainly are people who care about this country, who love this country, who want to make sure that the country moves ahead. But the question is, there is not one person who is willing to put the country ahead of the political party. And that has to change if this country is going to be saved. And that's why I'm so pessimistic. You know, I like that there's almost two layers right now. That there's 
Well, there, there's failed leadership among the usual suspects, uh, abysmal leadership. And then there's the other issue where you don't have a quote-unquote leader or a political figure uh, who has sort of emerged, uh, whether it's in recent history, figures like Rafiq Hariri, or whether it's other countries' histories, which you just elaborated on, Charles de Gaulle. But in any aspect, it's there's no visible organization structure that is sort of charismatic enough or influential enough to sort of step up. But I, I'll, I'll ask it again, and I apologize if this is almost a superficial question at this point, but just in terms of Adib's government that never took hold, is the burden on medio mediocre figures, all stripes, or is there a primary stumbling block that is preventing the mediocre crowd from being phased out over time? And that could be just reform that takes years and years and those that cannot which should be ushered out and i'm talking just really the the first step macron's frustrations sounded more like the first step wasn't made but had that first step been made or let's just i'll ask it differently is the first step not being made because of one party's intransigence or or is it a collective burden that with or without that party hmm, okay Burden. Let's yeah. go back a few years. In 2000, in 2018, when there were the last municipal and I'm, I'm sorry, uh, parliamentary elections yes. mm -hmm. in, in this country, uh, the parliamentary elections produced this parliament: 128 individuals, 127 party members, and mm -hmm. one individual who just resigned, of course, independent. Yes. In 2018, the political establishment gerrymandered electoral law and make sure that they would remain in power. Macron has to deal with this crowd. Mm. Macron, everybody else has to deal with this crowd. Yeah. Now, if you have to deal with this crowd, then you have to accept them for what they are. We're <laughs> not talking about individuals. This yeah. is neither Mother Teresa in front of us or uh, or, uh, or a prophet coming from one price of the world or another. These are what I call political merchants. They are merchants as well as politicians. Mm -hmm. They have interests as well as policies. Sometimes they mix, sometimes they don't. But essentially, their long-term interests are, as far as the country is concerned, are secondary questions. The primary interests that they have are their economic welfare, their businesses, their their clannish uh, attitudes. I don't want to use the word mafia because that's giving too much credit for these groups. <laughs> the mafia is organized uh, and very efficient in a certain extent. These people are not even efficient. The proof, yeah. we've talked about this all the time. They've been at it for years and years and they cannot even guarantee electricity or water or collect the garbage how can what do you expect from an establishment that is not even able to collect garbage what kind of a genius do you need to be to collect garbage from the streets why is this a matter because garbage is sold it's sold to companies who owns the companies the politicians own the companies right. therefore whether it is whether it is this government 
or whether it is any other government, they have to deal with the establishment as a whole. There is no alternative. The alternative was tried after 17 October when 2 million people went into the streets. Mm -hmm. They wanted, they asked for the establishment to, to abandon power, which is not going to happen, of course, to go home and let experts come and rule the country. And of course, the answer was, no, we're not leaving. We're happy where we are. We want to continue to abuse our power. From your side, as somebody who's witnessed the last year, we're, we're approaching the one-year anniversary of this whole event. Protests are demands that were unmet. But that said, persistent push for a better state against all odds. And that's not just the Beirut blasts. That's not just the economic crisis and COVID, everything still trying. So there's that angle. And then you have the political establishment that is unable to do the bare minimum to unlock funds. So there's, in a way, it's, it's almost like both sides are fighting for their survival. And Macron is trying to mediate, in a way, bringing aspirations to life and encouraging some sense of reform. If you can project a bit down the road, assuming that there is this kind of deadlock for the foreseeable future, and let's brush aside U.S. elections for now, all that discussion about Biden and Trump, let's push that aside, just in terms of Lebanon, as we know it, is there an expiration point where the country will literally collapse? Or is this going to be the status quo for the time being, that you'll have a very difficult situation, but not complete collapse. Because I'm, in a way, offering a segue to the idea of partition and when that becomes a fait accompli, when you may actually see communities diverging. So I, and I don't mean in terms of, I, I mean, I'm sorry if it sounds like a month or three months or a year, but just in terms of, is there a tipping point that cannot be sort of, once we cross it, it's, it's, it's a done deal. We have three options. Mm -hmm. Lebanon has three options. I should say the Lebanese have three options. Mm -hmm. One, as you described now, the status quo will continue and we will move from one crisis to the other. Eventually, this political establishment might or might not, but it might, logically speaking, uh, find a new prime minister uh, and form a government and continue the, the deals that they make. But yeah. that will solve nothing, essentially, because they are proving to us that they are largely incapable of actually producing the kind of policies that the people of this country need. With the economic collapse of the country now, we are, we are in hyperinflation, 354% inflation in one year. There is only one country ahead of Lebanon now, and that's Venezuela. Okay? And the... the uh, now, now, I am old enough to remember when, when one U.S. dollars was equivalent, when one U.S. dollar was two Lebanese pounds. Right. I'm old enough to remember that. Yeah. One U.S. dollars was two Lebanese pounds. Today on the black market, it is 8,400. And people are saying next week or the week after it will reach 10,000, maybe more. So therefore, the first option is we'll continue the way we are we will move from one crisis to the other. Mm. The second option is to actually go to war again, to renew. Remember that the civil war from 1975 to 1990 
resolved absolutely nothing. Yeah. They came up the Taif Accords. The Taif Accords are not a peace treaty. It is an update of the Constitution. Yeah. But the actors, the militias that were fighting are still there. They're, they haven't disappeared. And, of course, one of them has become very powerful, Hezbollah. And it will decide whether, it, as Macron said yesterday, they can either be part of the democratic process or they can go for a war. He didn't use the word, the word war. He used le pire in French, which is the worst. Yeah. But that, that's what he meant was war. I don't think a lot of Lebanese want to go to war, frankly. Uh, and even Hezbollah, if it tried again, if it tried again this route, it will lose too. Right. Because nobody will accept it. So there is a third option. The third option is to actually sit down together, everyone, and decide what they want to do with Lebanon, how they want to govern themselves. Now, I have written this article in Foreign Policy in which I talk about partition, but it doesn't mean that it's written in stone. And mm -hmm. partition is a very messy process. It is cumbersome. It will take a long time. It will probably require a constitutional convention where everybody will fight tooth and nail to get what they want, uh, federalism or, or another form of government. But at any rate, there are fundamental issues that need to be addressed by the Lebanese establishment. And I, again, this has nothing to do with the people of Lebanon. It has to right. do with the establishment, because partition is not going to happen at the popular level. It's going to happen at the political level. It's always like that. Politicians decide to divide societies not populations. What happened in Yugoslavia after the Tito government fell, or what happened in Czechoslovakia, where we have the Slovenian Republic, the Slovak Republic, yeah. and the Czech Republic. Of course, they were lucky because they had someone like Vaclav Havel who could actually bring peace to both of these societies. That, that was a very sweet, sweet and divorce deal. <laughs> well, Lebanon doesn't have such an individual, unfortunately. Right. Uh, there is no Vaclav Havel in Lebanon. So... Don't expect anything. But a constitutional convention will trigger a mechanism for partition. Why do I say that? What, am I, am I uh, so, uh, so idealistic to think that partition would occur peacefully? I am not talking from a position of idealism. I am talking from a position of no alternative. Simply stated, the Lebanese have become different peoples. We don't share much in common anymore, besides Tabule and Hamus. <laughs> we really don't share much in common anymore. There are, there are Lebanese from all religious backgrounds, Muslim and Christian, who want freedom. And then there are other Lebanese from all religious backgrounds, Muslim and Christian, who don't care for freedom. The big issue that confronts the Lebanese, especially the Lebanese establishment, is whether or not this society wants to remain true to its legacy of millennia. Lebanon has been around for thousands of years. And the one thing, the thread, the thread that has always remained constant throughout history, maybe 2,000 or 3,000 years, was the search for freedom and liberty. That is what makes Lebanese different from Syrians, from Palestinians, from 
Iraqis, from Egyptians, from all other Arabs, the search for freedom. Now, partition is not necessarily going to mean that automatically, or federalism, it doesn't mean that you're going to automatically have freedom. You still have to fight for it. But at least you will be able to tell the difference between those who really want to have freedom and those who could care less. That is my premise when I wrote this article. And believe me, it was very difficult to put these words on paper. Because I, I know not only it's sensitive, but it is, it is gut-wrenching to talk about a topic that is divisive. And it wants to separate people. But at the end of the day, you have to ask yourself the question, can we continue the way we are? I'm going to quote you to you, and <laughs> I love that expression, <laughs> in two different sections of your article. And I think I'll start from the bottom and then work my way back. Because the, last, okay. the, the closing passage, I think, hints at exactly what's at stake. Without liberty, Lebanon has no meaning, since those who presumably created the current geographic entity intended to empower its inhabitants with the freedoms that were absent elsewhere in the region. Regrettably, the 1920 experiment failed, and the real question that confronts the Lebanese in 2020 is whether their country ought to go back to its pre-1920 settings. And I'll take a step back. Beyond the explosions that rocked Beirut on August 4, beyond successive economic crises that impoverished a large majority of the Lebanese, and beyond the continued hijacking of political life by one of the most corrupt ruling establishments anywhere on the planet, Lebanon is now confronting its thirsty post-1920 demons. There's a historic perspective, and this is why I enjoyed your piece. Not only do you define what a consociational democracy is, which is a good primer for anyone that is in Lebanon, I don't think the definition is often known. But aside from that, the 100-year experiment that had its heyday way before the Civil War and has been limping, struggling, and perhaps it's dying right now. But there's that, that perhaps pre-1920 is the natural inertia of the country. And this is just one century that stands out. But you have hundreds of years of history where this type, this model, did not really exist the way we know it. So if you, if you don't mind, I'd like to jump into first the demons. What exactly are those demons? And I... I I like that you're offering one immediate example of what we're sacrificing, which is the liberty that we became known for. But, but the demons that were, th those thirsty demons, and I like you said thirsty, it's almost like now more than ever, if we don't deal with them at the final blow, we've lost. And also, what exactly were the benefits pre-1920, if they exist, where federalism or some form of partition takes hold? and maybe gives us a break, a much-deserved much break from this cycle of brief pros prosperity and then years and years of decline, stagnation, and war. So I, I know it's a huge question, and I know it's, I mean, it's unfair to put a century-long question <laughs> to anyone, but there is a marker, and that marker is very symbolic. And it's, it's all the more symbolic that Macron shows up a day, I mean, he's there during the centennial. And these are very important I think we'll look back on this as a very sort of very uh, extremely symbolic gesture. So I, if you don't mind, I'd like to gauge your mind on, on the demons 
Yeah. What what pre nineteen twenty benefits do exist, if if any? The demons uh, the demons of Lebanon are the sectarian uh, attitudes that people have. Mm. Uh, obviously, we're talking about uh, embedded sectarianism, and uh, in one hundred years in post nineteen twenty period, the Lebanese have failed to actually create a single nation. What we have done, we've created multitude of nations. We have 18 religious communities, both Muslim and Christian, and, and we compete with each other all the time. But we define ourselves as, first and foremost, sectarian, uh, a Shia Muslim, a Sunni Muslim, a Maronite Christian, an Armenian Catholic, uh, and whatever, you know, a, a Druze, etc. This is a demon because that we, we haven't been able to separate church from state. And the constitution of 1926, when the first constitution yes. was yeah. brought in under the French rule, I understand it was a colonial period and everything. But still, they had put down the foundations of not a secular state, but at least a country, a society that would gradually move towards secularism, something which the Taif Accords try to institutionalize by separating the uh, legislative branch into a sectarian Senate and a non-sectarian House of Representatives. Right. Of course, the Lebanese yeah. have not applied this, yeah. and we continue this, this, we pretend, this is a pretense more than anything else, that we what we call, we live together, Al-Aish al-Mushtarak, that we talk about this. There is no such thing as Aish al-Mushtarak in Lebanon. This is an illusion. We talk about it, but we don't apply it. That's a demon, because what that does, we grow as children in a society that always puts the finger or pulls the finger to the other, the other, the other, the other. We don't have the citizen, the mm. citizen, a citizen. We have the other. That's a big demon. And the Lebanese have failed utterly in 100 years to come to terms with, with this reality. Now, the benefits of the pre-1920, and this question that you asked me is actually a brilliant question, because we don't know our history, and we, we, forget, we forget what happened under the 450, almost 500 years of Ottoman rule when the Ottomans really butchered the society, 200,000 people died of starvation between mm. 1915 and 1918 mm. in Lebanon. Mm. Half of the population of Lebanon was gone mm. at that time. Of course, it was under the mutasarrifi of the Ottoman Empire and so on. But the benefit was that before 1920, when the Ottomans were ruling this part of the world, the Lebanese were united. The Lebanese were united. There was a great deal of unity amongst people. All, of course, because they were anti-Ottoman and they want, they resented the the uh, the control that the Ottomans exercised over them. But nevertheless, there was a great deal of unity before 1920. Mm. And because of the starvation, because half of the population died at that time, as I have explained in the paper. Uh, Maronite Patriarch and the Mufti of the Republic got together at that time and accepted to have the Greater Lebanon phenomenon. Of course, 
you know, I am one of those very few people that is not happy about the accord that occurred in 1920. I want you to know that because I think that it was a mistake to actually enlarge the country and bring the four additional governorates, you know, taking the Bika and the South and the North and putting them all together. But the assumption I understand at the time was that we needed to survive. We needed to survive and we needed to live together. Perhaps they were thinking at the time about unity, but obviously after 100 years, we can draw certain conclusions. The most important conclusion is that during the first 100 years, we've had ups and downs. We had great men and women, and we had abysmal men and women. We had leaders and we had thugs. We had respect for authority and we have lawlessness. And, and you can see, you know, I don't want to name necessarily the individuals involved. That will take too long <laughs> of an expose. But remember that we had people like Charles Malik. Charles Malik not only was a foreign minister and our representative at the United Nations, but along with Eleanor Roosevelt, he wrote the United Nations human rights yeah. documents. Yeah. Now, there are not too many countries in the world who can make such a claim. Well, that's true. And Macron, to his credit, he refers to Lebanon as the treasure of humanity, le trésor de l'humanité, he said. The treasure of humanity, unfortunately, the treasure of humanity is in the hands of crooks. Joe, I want to interrupt you here because we look. We can continue on the demons, but I think this is a point that I, I'd like you to help me understand the 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 unity that you described pre nineteen twenty, pre nineteen fifteen, okay. pre Jamal Pasha, pre all that. Okay. The Mutasadafi period, which is the most recent experiment prior to the French Mandate, is that in your in your assessment is that a precursor to the form of government that we have now? Or is that a different model that, in a way, served a function for half a century, but it did, in a sense, I mean, it's not partition, but it's it's not the communal coexistence that you, in a way, elaborated in your in your piece, but it is a there it is a sectarian model. It's not one of of nation or nationhood or citizenry. It's an Ottoman conglomerate of sort of geographies and communities. Is that, in your mind, a, a, a better form of sectarianism? Because I, I like that you, you're saying that this is a demon. Sectarianism is a demon. And that citizenship, citizenry, did not take hold. And it's been 100 years. It hasn't worked. But is that model the one that we should be looking at? Or is it, is it something else? No, we have to move to something else, something else. We cannot go back to what it was before, because obviously um, we've learned quite a few lessons since that, at least some of us have learned quite a few lessons since that time. Look, in order for the Lebanese to function as fantastic human beings, productive, smart, capable, you throw a Lebanese anywhere around the world, and not only he lands on his feet, 
but he succeeds more often than not. It's not universal, but our record is exceptionally good. The Lebanese succeed outside of Lebanon, they fail inside Lebanon. And they fail because of the political system under which they live. Uh, and it's, it's unconscionable, but that's the reality. So therefore we have to come up with something else. Mm. My criteria is if sectarianism is a demon and we have to remove sectarianism from our political system, what is it that we're going to replace it with? Right. We're going to replace it with liberty. We're going to replace it with freedom. If Lebanon has really no meaning without, without liberty, I've written this and I really believe it. Mm -hmm. what, is the, what is the meaning of Lebanon if there is no liberty? If I cannot say what I want to say, if somebody is going to threaten me, as I have been threatened by several people after this article came out, believe it or not, several prominent people in this country threatened me after this article came out. If I cannot express my opinion, what kind of a country am I living in? What kind of a democracy I'm living in? Is this a democracy or a, I don't want to say banana republic because I love bananas. This is not even a kiwi. This yeah. is not a, even a kiwi republic. I, 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 I take liberty here interrupting you, so I, I'm sorry to do this, but I, I want to push on this point because I share the sentiment fully. Without freedom, the way you're describing it, without a sense of liberty that attracted the region's best as well, and brought them to Lebanon. It's not just a Lebanese story, it's a regional story. There were decades where the region was toxic and poets and writers and thinkers and the like and politicians that couldn't survive in their homes and communities that no longer felt safe chose Lebanon. So there is, it, it is a magical part of our past and it's a recent past. Would you put any of the benefits or the reality of that kind of liberty that existed for a period of time in Lebanon, is there any correlation to the sectarian model we had? And I'm saying this carefully, not sectarianism, not, not necessarily, not, not the ills of sectarianism, more the pluralism, that you had a number of communities that found a way, maybe didn't last long, but they found a way to share a space without overwhelming each other. It's the consociational democracy that you described. And that the pluralism that Lebanon adhered to is really the exception for the region. And that harkens back to Ottoman years as well. So I'm, maybe I'm trying to understand really what Lebanon would look like if we went the full secular way. And what partition would look like? Is it going to be a civil state that emerges, a rump civil state with a select number of communities? And it's hard for me to actually understand really, and I, and I know you carefully say this in the piece, you, you yourself don't know what partition would look like. And you make that clear. But I'm trying to get there. I'm really trying to understand what the, if, if Lebanon is inevitably heading in that direction, and I'm, maybe I'm repeating myself, but I like the way you described it. There's a three-tier process in a sense. And I think the first two are unlikely. And we may inevitably be heading to number three. What it would look like? What, what kind of rump state emerges and is it free? Uh, you actually use the magical word mm. that, that, that we all need to come to terms with. Lebanon 
benefits from its plurality. Pluralism is a good thing. Mm. And it's much better than ugly sectarianism that pigeonholes individuals into their respective communities. Yes. But pluralism is not free. You have to pay the price for pluralism. Mm. There are in our society, in Lebanese society today, both on the Muslim and on the Christian side. And and as I think and I hope that in my comments, this becomes clear because I find demons in both sides. Mm. And I don't just to concentrate on one party, Hezbollah, or, or another. Uh, for me, there are demons on both sides, among Muslims and among Christians. But in order to uh, build on pluralism, and, and put the liberty in the heart of our pluralistic society to make it some kind of a, uh, of a model. I yeah. don't want to say a beacon on a hill because that's an overrated expression. There is no such thing, not even in the United States. But in order to get there, what we have to do, we have to understand something, that society must be more or less egalitarian that we must have a socioeconomic level field. We must have an education level that is constant. We cannot have highly educated individuals and very poorly educated individuals, not through any fault of their own, but because of circumstances of life. This society is pluralistic, but it Mm. also Mm. within it individuals who behave at the gut level Mm. and I don't want to call them I don't want to call them thugs that are manipulated and we see them uh, killing people or or, uh, shooting people as we occasionally see them not everybody is like that there are political parties who are actually pushing for this kind of education to be determined or to be to, to become apparent in public we, don't, we cannot afford that. Lebanon, the Lebanese model in a pluralistic, free model has to resemble more like Singapore or more like Norway or societies where there is a great deal of interaction, different communities. But obviously we're not there because this society not only is pluralistic, multilinguistic and socioeconomically rich, but it also has within it very low uh, quality educated individuals who are very easily manipulated. When we talk about liberty, our duty is to pull these people up and not to let them down, is to pull our brothers and sisters who are less fortunate or have been less fortunate to bring them up so that they can also partake in the liberty that we want, not just for ourselves, but for the plural society at large. Now, this takes the kind of education that the establishment in this country is incapable of delivering. To me, the Lebanese state and all its flaws and all its complications died in 1970. And I've been having this conversation with many guests on that on the on the podcast that have been desperately trying to seek reform. 
This could be in the energy sector, could be in the finance sector, could, could be political reform. Talented people, experts in the field that are desperate for change and they, can, they cannot affect change. And there's plenty of them. And in a way, you hinted at that. It's, it's a country that cannot, its talent survives abroad. It, it stagnates at home. And, and, it, and it thrives abroad. But 1970, to me, and I want you to tell me if I'm wrong here, is the cutoff. That we've now lived through half a century of a state that cannot be held to account with all of its problems. And that includes the mistakes made during the French mandate. That includes maybe the, the mistakes made in our early independence. But, but the moment the state stopped functioning. You mentioned earlier that there was a level of respect for authority, not, not in a toxic way, but in a healthy way, that you would not want to break the law. There were consequences to breaking the law. Today, lawless. I can imagine the 1960s being a decade where there was some respect still for the rule of law. Problematic politicians, problematic community elders, problematic religious figures, but they could be held to account when needed. And I think, I sense, the country was moving in a better direction. And that 50 years of a situation that did not occur in 1970, and I'm using that year in particular, and I mean it in terms of sovereignty, a state that can no longer manage its affairs. Had we not had a half century like that, I think we would be in a much better place in terms of reform, good governance. We may have had a second social pact. Who knows? We may have a completely different constitution. We're on our way there. But I see 1970 as the point of no return. And I don't know if any reform can be made now so long as we don't address that demon. And that demon to me is sub-state behavior. Not in the NGO sense, not in the positive way. I'm talking about the way that can that can dement a state to the point that it stops functioning altogether. It was the PLO. It was Arafat and Fatah for, for years. It was many Lebanese militia that emerged in the years 1970s and on. It's the Syrian army's indirect and direct management of Lebanon. And today it's Hezbollah. And I just see that as the main stumbling block. Would you share that sentiment? And would you put that demon ahead of the others? That this is the one demon that prevents us from looking at all other demons? Or is it really just one of many and they're kind of all in the same basket? And they're, they're all problematic and they all have to be addressed some way? And uh, well, the demon that you described, uh, starting with the Cairo Accord, 1969 yes. and 1970 and on, that's the, that's the kind of... Uh, big demon that came and overtook the demons that existed in the country, mm. sectarianism and everything else, it essentially uh, built on the failures that existed in the country. Now, you, in your question, you, you focused on lack of accountability during the past 50 years. Yeah. Of course, there is no legal system that is independent in the country, but there was at one point an mm. independent mm judiciary in this country. And the political establishment wisely to advance their own interests emasculated the legal system, the judiciary branch of the government, 
to the point where it is totally unexistent. Two months ago, when the harbor explosions occurred, the president of the republic promised accountability and the poor minister of the interior, General, uh, I call him General Ancido Suite because he likes to use Ancido Suite all the time. Uh, he <laughs> promised that we will have the first revelations within five days. And of course, nobody talks about these things. Yeah. We don't know what happened in the harbor and we will never know what happened in the harbor because we don't have accountability in this, in this society anymore. But it doesn't mean that we cannot have accountability because one of the benefits of a free pluralistic society is to actually self-respect. Accountability comes when members of society decide to respect themselves. Now, we know that the political establishment is very far from this equation. They are not interested in either respecting themselves or each other. So therefore, it's up to people of Lebanon to actually recreate it in a partitioned environment or in a federal environment. It could be that at a, a small level, in, 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 a, in a certain geographical entity, there could be pluralistic accountability as well. Now, this is perhaps dreaming on my part. <laughs> Lebanon is a small country, uh, and, and if we partition it, or even in a federal system, we're going to have even smaller entities. Right. Uh, the largest governor of Lebanon is the Bekaa, which is almost half the size of the country. Mm. Uh, Mount Lebanon, for example, the historical Mount Lebanon, is only 2,000 square kilometers. So it's not all that big. Mm. On the other hand, Monaco is much smaller. <laughs> and Monaco is a success story. And there is no reason why Monaco East cannot duplicate Monaco West. I, uh, to me, and I want, maybe I'll, I'll ask you, because it, it touches on this, but it sort of posits a dilemma that whether it's the Cairo Accord or whether it's Hezbollah today, there's a dilemma that you have communities or, or may, perhaps geographies too, that when they're insecure, when they see their survivability at stake, imagined or not, uh, the idea or the, the topic of, re of partition sort of, it enters the, the landscape, it enters the lexicon and people discuss it. It never necessarily happens. It, it maybe maybe shadows of it occur, and that's 1980s. That's Khatames, That's that's a republic that's de facto divided, but that's not partition in the way that we understand it. At least in terms of the the events that have happened in recent history, it's not ex-Yugoslavia. It's not Czechoslovakia. There's that dilemma. Communities seek division when they're insecure, and there's a passage in your piece, and I, I'm going to quote you to you again. As Lebanon teeters on the brink of collapse, the country's Christians, Druze, and Sunnis, along with some Shia, are determined to preserve their freedoms. Many endured hardships for four centuries under Ottoman rule, and some have once again begun talking about federalism as an option to ensure their long-term safety. Though, how that would work in a sectarian society such as Lebanon is unclear especially when Hezbollah, as opposed to the very idea of federalism or partition. 
So there's one group that is saying, no way. There are other groups that may be inclined towards it, and they're not able to. That kind of, that situation, in a way, to me, is less, it's paralysis. It's almost like you can't get to partition, and you can't share this space together. So instead of moving forward, or necessarily moving backward, backward would be towards war, it's paralysis. One group is dictating the terms, and they're dictating the status quo that has reached, that has led us to this point. So I'll ask it again, and it's almost like in a, in a historic context. Are we in the state we're in right now, and that means dysfunctional, but not partitioned, because of Hezbollah? And is Hezbollah really the determining factor over what Lebanon will look like in the years to come? And, and that could be a country that retains its borders, it retains its flag, it retains maybe a smaller sense of pluralism that is less meaningful, with lesser freedoms, but the country itself does not dissolve, that it's in a way held hostage. The reason why Hezbollah is opposed to partition, although it should not be because its interests will advance a lot better in a partitioned Lebanon or a federal Lebanon. But the reason why it is against partition, at least verbally, is because it wants to eat the entire country. It wants to rule with impunity. It does not care about whether Sunnis, Druze, Christians of all walks of life have anything to say. Hezbollah wants to create the Wilayat al-Faqih in Lebanon, the jurisconsult uh, of, uh, of uh, the Faqih represented by uh, Iran and its ayatollahs uh, to rule the country. It wants to be part of this idealistic ummah, Muslim ummah, that most Arabs have given up, most Muslims have given up eons ago. Hezbollah wants the whole pie, and it wants to eat it. One would not be opposed to such a plan if Hezbollah's plan was, one, democratic, and two, advanced liberties. But neither democracy nor liberty is on the agenda when Hezbollah speaks. What Hezbollah wants is something totally different. The rest of the Lebanese, including many Shias, are not necessarily in cahoots with this kind of an outlook. They want to maintain not just the plurality of Lebanon, where people actually coexist together and work together, share together, intermarry, and do all the wonderful things that people have done at the individual level. But again, I'm talking at the political elite level. Uh, that's, yeah. that's very important. Uh, at that level, at the political elite level, this doesn't in any shape, way, or form, advance the interests of Hezbollah and similar groups. Even among Christians, there are groups that are aligned with Hezbollah who are not interested in freedom either. They're interested in a dictatorship. The choice for Lebanon is really this, Ronnie. It's we are either going to be in a pluralistic society where freedom is primary objective of every member of the society, including the political establishment that must be accountable to, it, to the people that elect them, or we want to live in a dictatorship. The choice is very clear. There are not 
too many alternatives here. We're not we're not going to create a, the wheel all over again. It's it's either or. There is no gray area when it comes to freedom. You're either free or you're not free. You either want to be free or you don't want to be free. It's your choice. You know, Joe, I I'd like to challenge you on on one point, and I'd like you to correct me where I need to be corrected. I always sense that Hezbollah's uh, survival depended on a Lebanon that is pluralistic and a state that would tolerate their security needs, their foreign policy agenda, their weapons, and the like, but that they would not be able to survive in a homogeneous, partitioned, sort of very brutal sort of construct, that they would be that, that that they would really be threatened when they had to face reform among among their own community and that kind of almost like an, an ethnic or ethno-religious or whatever you want to call it, just a very small chunk of real estate, they would become very unpopular very fast, and that they're still around and growing and, and powerful and all of the above because they've managed to co-opt the state that, that they don't directly run. I mean, the trash, electricity, environmental issues, police even, and, and just maybe all aspects of the state. I'll go one step further. It's maybe everything except sovereignty, which is a fundamental criteria. But they don't want to govern the country. And I, for me, when I hear the Walayat al-Faqih story, and it's, it's there always, and it's shared among many people I speak with, and it's available any time online, that doesn't resonate with me. I don't, I don't think that this group cares about uh, the form of governance. Aside from, they need a state that they can co-opt. And if they can co-opt it, with other communities, all the better. It's almost like the lifeline is the Lebanese model, but it's a perverted, subjugated, uh, corrupted version of what Lebanon's founders intended. Am I getting that wrong? That, that they don't see the need for religious rule, they don't see the need for a pure demographic state, they see the need for a Lebanon that we love but on their terms. Well, it's not a question of whether you get it right or wrong. It's it's uh, sociologically it doesn't it doesn't uh, come down to right and wrong. Mm. But uh, make no mistake that there is a religious agenda. Uh, I'll give you a couple of examples. There are anecdotal pieces of evidence, of course, but one can draw uh, patterns out of these anecdotal evidences. Uh, when, for example, in Sur. You have a alcohol merchant yeah. who has his shop blown up, or yeah. when, for example, Shia women uh, who are educated, let's say, who wear Western clothes, who don't cover their hair with a veil, are ostracized in Shia society because they are not fulfilling their religious obligation and and covering up from head to toe, or when you watch Manar television, for example and compare that with LBC or MTV, the contrast is like night and day. These are all anecdotal pieces of evidence. But there is something much more important 
than these anecdotal pieces of evidence. And that has to do with the co-optation of the establishment. And let me give you a couple of examples, and, and you think about them, and, and our audience members will think about them, and they will make the decisions whether or not there is a religious agenda or not. Now, Hezbollah makes a lot of money that is donated to it, and it comes from Iran via Syria, of course, and it has to go to the banking system. And we have seen what they have done to the banking system of Lebanon. They have entirely co-opted it from top to the bottom. Now, they pretend that they don't work within the banking system, but unless you bring cash loads from Africa by planes, and sometimes they crash as the Cotonou flight crashed a few years ago, yeah, where there right. was a lot of cash that was flying in the ocean, yeah. and people collected it, you have to go to the banking system. There are institutions that you have to follow. And Lebanon used to have a very efficient and great financial uh, platform. It's gone. And, 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 and it, it's gone because it is in the interest of Hezbollah to control it. And they did for religious purposes again. I'll give you another example. Uh, a couple of years ago in Tripoli in the north, there were several, there were two mosques that were bombed. Yes. Uh, and about 50 people were killed, if I'm not mistaken. Even, uh, even more, more, more. Yeah, it was, maybe yeah. More, maybe yeah. Uh, and, and, and obviously, uh, uh, you know, there have been so many assassinations in this country. All of that is for religious purposes that are tied with, with political agendas as well. In my view, one cannot separate Hezbollah's religious agenda from its political agenda. They are meshed together. And you mentioned a word a few moments ago, which I want to also tie in with this question about the insecurity of survivability as well, that Hezbollah will feel insecure if it is not protected by the society, by the state. This is true, of course, and the best proof of this is that they have co-opted the President Aoun and his party in order to dominate the system. Today, President Aoun is only president as a figurehead. He does not have sovereignty and authority over the country no matter what anybody tells you. And Macron yesterday chastised the president very clearly. Yeah. He named him by saying, you're not doing what you're supposed to do. Instead, you're following Hezbollah's agenda. And you cannot be, this, this, is, this is a fundamental question, Ronnie. This is really a fundamental question that we have to come to terms with. It has nothing to do with religion. It has everything to do with religion. <laughs> you, know, you, know, you know, you remind me, I'm going to interject here. You remind me, it's a, it's not a very good movie. It's called Kingdom of Heaven. Salah din yes. shows up to Jerusalem. If you know the ending, right. Absolutely. I think it's Absolutely. A, a priest asks him, what does Jerusalem mean to you? And he says, nothing. And as he sort of wanders off, he returns for that Hollywood finale. Everything. <laughs> <laughs> that's exactly but, that's exactly the situation with Hezbollah. Trust me. But as somebody, me, I mean, there some, is an agenda. I, I I'm no expert on this group, although I my whole life has been upended by this group. But I'll say that I've never looked at them within a religious. I, I don't apply religion to their uh, to their goals. So you you mentioned earlier their, I mean, whether it's assassinations or whether it's just policies. 
in, in Lebanon. I, I see that more as a sub-state group determined to hijack a system for its benefit. Less to do with those examples which are tr which are which are real that the pressure to not serve alcohol or face violence or for that matter the pressure to maybe dress a certain way in certain parts of the country but that to you me cannot, they are even swimming on the beach there are swimming clubs where only women are allowed men are not allowed anymore. sure sure and as somebody who's a fierce critic of this group i'm not coming at this sort of a defensive uh, angle but i see that as more of a Lebanese issue, less to do with them. And that, that I mean, the same way I wouldn't apply the Sunni question to Fatah in Lebanon, even though the base was predominantly there, and even though maybe the, uh, the sectarian story is obvious, but I see it more as survival, and, and by proxy, Iran's wider goal, and, and Iran's the, the regime survivability. So it's almost a typical proxy behavior rather than religion. And that's how I've always sort of applied, I've applied those standards on the group. But, but it I, could be. Yeah. It, it could be. I, I, am no, I am no judge of these kinds of situations. Mm, mm. But I us take it back. I don't think this is only sociological or cultural, mm. where, for example, I meet a Shia woman and she does not extend her hand for and, me to shake her hand. And that's, a Sunni woman would do that. Oh, yes. I've been in Tripoli too many times where it's, I mean, <laughs> so that for me is like, I take it for granted now that I have to think before reaching out for a handshake. And I, I mean, to me, that is, that's why I meant more, no, no, Le more Lebanese. Hmm. No, I meant, I meant, no, this is not just Lebanese. This is, it happens with our, with our Shia neighbors. It happens all the time throughout the Gulf. I travel, you know, I, I practically live in Saudi Arabia. I go to Oman. I go to all these places. And, and I have no problems with interacting with Sunnis, and I shake their hands and they shake my hand. Uh, I'm talking about women in particular, but I always get, of course, now with COVID, everybody does this. But, but uh, I, look, the point that I'm making is that we should not, we're, we're talking about big principles. We're talking about liberty. We're talking about freedom. These are not small things. We should not really disassociate a party from its dogma, from its political, religious, social dogma. The far more important thing to me is not the fact that there are Shia women who go to a beach that is secluded and no men are allowed. It's not a Lebanese thing. It happens everywhere else throughout the Arab world mm -hmm. and throughout the Muslim world. But to me, it's a question of liberty. And it's a question of choice that people have got to make. Uh, and and, and to, to me, those are the far more important issues. Mm. And this is why I think that there comes a point where we have to make choices. We have to decide whether or not we can actually coexist together. This is a hard thing to say. I am not, I, am not, uh, I don't want to be a, a, a determinist in saying there is no outcome that is different from what I'm saying. Mm. There, there's mm. certainly 
different models that we should think about. But we've reached a point in Lebanon where we have difficulties with each other as a, as a people. And that's something that needs to be overcome. And the only way that I and a lot of people are comfortable with is when we talk about principles of democracy, freedom, and liberty. To me, those are the three, the three fundamental ingredients. Otherwise, why have Lebanon? My sense is that at, at the core of the average protester over the past year, that those three issues are, are paramount. And I think over time, those are the three issues that we're slowly losing. We're, we're it's, I mean, their, their survival is at stake. And I'm, I'm, I'm really glad that you keep bringing up liberty in, in all its aspects. And uh, I mean, we know the price. I mean, it's not that long ago prominent journalists spoke up against the Syrian regime's indirect rule and, and they were eliminated. And now you have a lot of fear again of talking about one group's capabilities and there are threats. I, um, I, I want to wrap it up with a question that is not, in a way it's a curious question that I was sent by a financial expert who, uh, who posited a sort of a curious take on partition. And I sort of had permission to, to ask his question. He was wondering about the reasons Lebanon is still around. That is there a financial incentive to stick it out this way? And that partition is a collective cost. <laughs> that not, in, in other words, no community comes out better following partition. And, and by proxy, you could say, in the last decades maybe, the, the first people that are afraid of partition are the most corrupt politicians that have embedded themselves in the economic system. But even without them around, it's, it's, a very difficult, it's a very difficult country to divide and have an economic model that would work. You mentioned Monaco earlier, and to me Monaco or something like Monaco are, are the exceptions that there it's almost like that is not the template and it doesn't often if anything we all know Monaco because of Monaco we don't know Monaco as one example of many Monacos so I, I would imagine several Gazas emerging rather than several Monacos but am I, am I being too bleak in, in that and it's a question from from a financial uh, from a financial analyst so it's a I'm curious about yeah you're not being bleak, and and uh, actually, I'm working on a on two follow-up essays. Mm. Uh, one of them is to talk about the the, the Monaco Plus mm -hmm. uh, the, that that a partition Lebanon could put on the table on the Mediterranean, uh, and I'll publish it soon, hopefully. But your question is is or the financial experts' question is to the point: Why is Lebanon still around? Is there a financial incentive that's keeping the country together. Uh, Lebanon is around essentially because failure is difficult to mop up. Hmm. This is a fit system. Hmm. Now, the cleanup process will take a long time. We're not, Lebanon is not around uh, because the model has succeeded. It has failed. This model has failed. But it's not going to be, as I said, 
the way Hezbollah would like to do is take the whole thing and transform it into its own model. And that, that will no longer mean that Lebanon, as we knew it, will continue. And there will be no reason to even think about that. Now, the financial model that Lebanon had, which was the success story of Lebanon, we produce nothing in this country or literally nothing in this country, right? Yeah. The one thing that, that put Lebanon on the map of the international community was its successful financial system. Absolutely, yeah. But, but the political establishment ruined it, not just because of corruption and thievery, which are widely known now and accepted by everybody, but because the financial gurus created the kind of Ponzi scheme that nobody could maintain. And Hezbollah is part of this Ponzi scheme. They're not innocent. The others are as guilty, of mm, course. Mm, mm. Financial incentives that existed no longer exist. And this past month has demonstrated to us that the political establishment is not even willing to consider a revival of the financial incentives that made this country's plat a platform, that made this country into a financial platform in the world. They're not even willing mm. to reform in order to welcome the International Mon Monetary Fund assistance or the SEDRA program assistance and so on and so forth. They're just not interested. Yeah. Why are they not interested? Because they've succeeded. They've impoverished, impoverished the population. The, the, we have hyperinflation in the country. 60% of the dollar deposits in the banks have lost over half of their value. This country is becoming a pauperized society. And the political establishment still thinks that its financial model is a success model. How does that work? Would I don't the, understand that. Would, would there be a way to at least ensure some economic stability before a healthy partition because i i like that you've you've suggested the it's almost like the you mentioned a dream in a sense that we have a convention we all agree to say goodbye but that would probably only happen if everything lined up properly for that to happen that would mean an economic not, incentive but that's not, not no, no okay not necessarily. Mm. not necessarily i mean what i'm what i'm essentially dreaming about, if you would like, is a polite divorce. Right. If there is such a thing. We have, we have to divorce. We just cannot live together anymore. I mean, it's like a couple that used to love each other, but no longer does. And, and we cannot live with each other anymore. Now, we can fight it out, and especially the, because we have 8 million kids in the country, five million citizens, we have to take care of the kids. We have five million children and divorce with children is a very ugly proposition, but we cannot live together anymore. And we have to come to terms with the fact that what we, that one party wants and what the other party wants are totally different. It can be done in a, in a uh, non-violent way if you have thinkers and leaders who will articulate this in a civilized way. Or if that does not work, 
then we'll go to war. And even Macron is not ruling that out. I would like to rule that out because yeah. I don't think that Lebanon could stand another war. And of course, the third option that we spoke about earlier is that we continue the mess and more people will emigrate, uh, more people will leave the country, and the country will be essentially, it will become the next Somalia of the Arab world. What I enjoy is maybe a, a, a very blunt and uh, honest and at the same time bleak, but bleak for the right reasons and the reasons you elaborated. Um, I still, and I think I think it's an overwhelming feeling, I think it's shared among most Lebanese. And I'm going to bet on this that you don't want this either, even if it's a fait accompli. Partition is not the primary agenda. It's not, we, I don't think any of us deep down really want to divide this country. If it's happening, it's really against our, our wishes. But you mentioned earlier you're, you're old enough to have seen the country literally collapse more than once. And you're now living in a country where it's, it's ungovernable. So I, I still hope that partition doesn't happen. Um, I hope that these leaders that you're that you're that you're maybe you're reminding us of that exists in different contexts and don't exist right now, a, a charismatic individual or a group of individuals from all stripes that see a way to push back against this trend and maybe give Lebanon its last chance. I'd like to see that I emerge. Hope so. I'd, I'd like to see this, I hope so. yeah, and I'd like to see them overcome the fear of intimidation, confessional anxiety, and also the fear of maybe assassination, that they should stand up regardless. And uh, I hope to see that emerge. I'd like to live in a country where my kids are in a better situation decades from now, not in a situation where this is still better than what's to come. But I appreciate your time. And, and, you stayed up late with me. And you have a fantastic background. I love the geopolitical quagmire right behind you. The whole region is sort of back in the background. And uh, I also like your, your clothing. I, I'm, I'm envious. I've been showing up too many times with a black shirt and boring attire. I think I should come with some fashion. <laughs> Hawaii shirt. I need a Hawaii shirt. <laughs> You're very kind, Joe. I appreciate your time. Thank you. I appreciate your opportunity, the opportunity to have this conversation with you, and uh, the fact that you uh, that you looked at my piece and foreign policy. It actually uh, has allowed me to think through, and I'm gonna uh, follow it up with several other essays, hopefully to add value to the conversation that this country badly needs. Thank you. With your permission, we'll have you back on when those essays are out, and we can gauge your mind further. My pleasure. My pleasure. Thanks for listening. And a friendly reminder to help support this podcast by contributing through Patreon or PayPal. All links are in the details box below. Until next time, I'm Rani Shatah, and this is the Beirut Banyan.